Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It is one of the eternal struggles because I don't have a good answer because I think it's one of the eternal struggles of being human is how do you maximize your individual creativity, your um, your own self-definition, tap into your individual talents, while also, you know, tending to the common good uh, and also understanding other people. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sarah, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your book, Hive Mind, and uh, it was one of those books that just surfaced on Amazon. And I looked at it and I thought, this just seems really fascinating. And then when I opened it, uh, I could not put it down. I just kept seeing things over and over again. Uh, So I want to start with what I think is, is a very relevant question, given the nature of your background and particularly this book. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact? did that end up having on the choices you've made throughout your life, your career, and your perspective on, on all of this? Absolutely. So in high school, I started out without a social group. And so I was a pretty anxious kid. And I had had a, a bit of a hard time in junior high. And so when I transitioned to high school, I didn't want to make a fuss uh, or didn't want to make a big noise. And so what I did was I just went really quiet. And I didn't really have many friends. I pretty much stuck to my own. I was nearly mute in class. And some of my later on, I found out that there were rumors about why I was so quiet, that I wasn't allowed to talk to people, that my parents were really strict, that I belonged to some weird religious sect. I don't know. And then about junior year in high school, I tried out for the school play because I had always loved theater. And there, I just that changed my life, and I found a group of friends to communicate with that understood me. I think that the experience of not only having to talk out, but to actually sing and dance and play on stage in front of a big audience really shifted my anxiety. It shifted my understanding of the world and kind of put me on this path toward what would eventually become some public speaking and, you know, workshop facilitation and things like that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many questions that come from just that experience alone of, you know, spending two years in high school by yourself, not really talking to anybody. What I wonder is, one, what did you learn about people from that period in which you weren't interacting with them? Because I know based on your background, you're an emotional regulation researcher. Uh, (laughs) Like, I'd imagine you must have been either, were you observing the world around you? What was that whole experience like? Like, what did you learn about people during that entire time? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I a lot I did some observation, I think, of people certainly in social settings and things like that, but more I had my nose in a book. And so I had a book in my pocket, a book in my bag. Uh, sometimes under the desk. <laughs> and so I was exploring stories. And I think that I took that need for sociality and turned to fiction to find um, solace. Hmm. So, I mean, as somebody who discovered a, a social group late in high school, it, this might be a really weird question, but, you know, I always think of myself as the Indian nerdy band geek. So I always wonder, you know, like, what is it that causes certain groups to to blend like why are there popular people in, in high school and why are there unpopular people and, and then why do you have people who are basically social chameleons who can navigate every single group and somehow fit into them my sister is is a person like that right well i think there's a lot at work there i think that we uh, become attracted to certain other people for friendship or uh for romance too that i think a lot of the, what goes into that is does this person view the world like I view the world? And you develop this affinity based on the shared understanding of the world. And that can be simple, practical things like we play band together or we do theater or we do sports. Um, but it can, I think it's more than that. And I think it's subtler than that. It mm-hmm. um, probably has more to do with how we approach other people, how we see the world. Yeah. Popularity versus unpopularity, you know, a lot of that I think is hive mindy, right? To the extent to which people meet the social norms of what is considered attractive, what is considered yeah. cool, what is, uh, and that's going to vary a lot school to school, um, culture to culture, certainly, even yeah. geographical region, things like that. Well, it's, it's funny because I, you know, recently I was on this Netflix documentary about matchmaking and all these people from my past showed up in my life. And it it was the strangest thing to me because like I saw everyone, particularly like girls that I thought were popular or cute, it was basically girls that were people that I never had a chance with. And I realized they never saw it that way. That was entirely based on my self-perception, right? Uh, which that to me alone is, is kind of weird, but what role do parents play and, and, you know, in shaping this worldview? Because I feel like mine has constantly evolved throughout my life, particularly when you are raised in an immigrant culture, you have a very sort of static worldview that is not really even one that you choose, but is almost imposed on you. Right. Well, I think our worldview is largely shaped by the people around us. And so when you're growing up, that is more your parents than anyone else. And that's why you see a lot. I mean, if you look at political beliefs in particular, you see that um, at least in early years, uh, children tend to look like their parents. Um, And then we start breaking out in middle school and adolescence and peers become a lot more important and a lot more influential. And that's a lot of why there's a lot of conflict at that age (laughs) Um, because all of a sudden your influence is gone and not gone, but reduced. And I think that, that, and then at college, you know, you kind of find yourself. And I think a lot of this finding yourself is finding other people um, who see the world like you do and then being influenced by those other people. And so we start out um, if we have, close parents who um, are in a certain kind of family structure and then move on to our peers and then the greater world. And finding ourself is, you know, very often socially mediated. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny when you say it that way, it's like, oh, well, no wonder most of the Indian kids are the dorks at school. That's what their parents want them to be. Um, But the, the funny thing about that, so you mentioned sort of conflict and this always takes me back when I think about adolescence to the fights that you have as a junior high kid with your parents mm-hmm. about wanting to be cool and need nice clothes and expensive stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, and your parents just become the most awful people in the world all of a sudden. What do you say to parents who are in that phase of dealing with sort of, you know, teenagers who mm-hmm. are driving them insane? Cause I, I have a, my best friend, I remember asking him, I said, do you ever feel like you're saying things to your daughter that you, your mom said to you and you said you would never treat your kids like that? He said, yeah, I, I really find that annoying, but yes. Uh, I think I would say that it's it's developmentally appropriate and necessary for both both for the, them to start paying attention to these social signals, right? Because a lot of what clothes and uh, you know technological equipment and you know do you have the AirPods? What what that's conveying is is it's an outward sign to the social partners that I'm I'm of a certain um, standard of coolness, and so that's very natural. But I think even the conflict with the parents is natural and that it means that your child is developing appropriately <laughs> and yeah. it, it's something that they need to do. And I think that even if there weren't a natural source of conflict, probably they would look for something that they could rebel against because it's just part of how they're developing their own personality and uh, figuring out how to be a separate person in the world. Mm. So, so I have two questions that, that come from this. Uh, one, you know, what was the path that led you down to this work as an emotional regulation researcher? Because that's not one of the options that your high school guidance counselor puts in front of you to say, hey, this is something you might consider. And two, what advice did your parents give you about making your way in the world? Uh, right. So in psychology, we have a catchphrase. We say research is me search, <laughs> um, which is to say that when you go into psychology, more often than not, you discover that the people who go into psychology, they're researching their own neuroses and their own problems. <laughs> Sounds and- like every guest here for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's, it's more, it's not just a psychologist thing. I think it's a human thing. Um, and so I'm a very emotional person and you know, discovered this very early on and, you know, reining in my emotions in and tamping them down and making them socially appropriate uh, has been a struggle. And so I'm naturally interested in how do people do that? What are the strategies or methods they use to control or regulate or uh, manage their emotional states? And what are the associations between differences in those strategies and emotional well-being? You know, mm-hmm. what lead to a life better lived? Yeah. Um, in terms of my parents, I, they actually did a fantastic job uh, because one of the things that I remember the most is in late high school, I suddenly decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. And so, in fact, I, I ruled out any college or university that didn't have marine science as an undergraduate major. I was so certain I was going to live on a boat and uh, study fish. And even though I've always been more of a word person than a science person. And um, my, I, then I had this big crisis of faith when I was um, doing the tours the, on the undergraduate campuses. And I t- would tell the tour guide what my intended major was. And so they would say, oh, this is the chemistry building. This is where you'll be doing all your labs. And I was like, oh, I hate labs. <laughs> and, and I suddenly realized that maybe this wasn't the path for me. And I told my mother, 
And I said, I think, I think you're going to kill me because I made you go to the University of Miami and, and travel around and, uh, for a tour. But I think I don't want to be a marine biologist. I think I want to do something with like people or words. Or, and she said, oh, I was wondering when you were going to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> so she knew, but she didn't, but she didn't try to control it. Right? Yeah. Um, and she let me discover it on my own. So you know, there are a couple of things that um, I wonder about. One, you're an educator. I, you know, I know from sort of doing my research on you and you basically work on this and this is completely pretty much left out of our educational system, both, you know, in high school and college you know, it's like you're spending years in therapy to undo damage that, you know, mean people did, your parents did. Uh, so one, you know, what is your view on how we integrate your work into education? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's you know, one of them. And, and I guess, you know, the other one, before we get into Hivemind um, specifically, how do you actually manage to self-regulate emotions? Because I think, you know, I am pretty much just like you in that uh, I tend to be sort of extreme. Yeah. You know, I'm either elated or depressed you know, often and, and things that most people handle in stride sometimes just send me off the rails. It's taken mm -hmm. years to kind of put that in check. Like a breakup would destroy me years ago. Mm -hmm. So how do you temper that? Right. So I guess the education question first, my, I do a lot of thinking and writing and researching actually lately on how do we think about emotions in the context of education. And um, my first book was called The Spark of Learning and is about how we can use emotion in the college classroom to help college students learn. And I've done a couple of research studies on that. And my new book project is returning back to education. And it's about anxiety in education. So I've done a lot of thinking about this. And I, I think that, and this will lead us into my answer to the self-regulation question, I think, I think that we need to appreciate the role of emotion in a life well-lived and the role of emotion in learning also in the classroom. And, you know, I do a lot of workshops for faculty and um, a lot of them will come up to me and say, Sarah, I like these ideas. And, you know, you're persuading me that because of how the brain works and how people work, that we need to think about emotion in the classroom. But I hate emotion. I'm not an emotion person. <laughs> um, I don't want to think about emotions in my teaching. And I have to say to them, it doesn't matter. It's too bad um, because their classroom is just full of emotions. Students are so emotional. Um, and they look at the rates. A lot of them are, are dealing with lots of depression, lots of anxiety. Um, but there's also lots of excitement, lots of interest, lots of creativity. And we need to think about how we kind of manage the emotional climate of our classrooms if we want to be the best teachers that we can be. And so I think that considering, you know, some ways of doing that or considering from the very first moments of course design to class design to assignments to assessments, considering how do I engage students' interest? Um, because really what emotions do for us is they signal value. They signal, this is something I should care about. This is something that I should remember, something that I should attend to, and something that I should be motivated to work on. And if we want our students to learn, we need them to attend to the class material, we need them to remember it, and we need them to be motivated. And so considering engagement and considering the emotional engagement of our students, um, and also how to dial down things like boredom, like frustration, like anxiety, um, are so important. So lots lots to say in education yeah. in terms of um, the regulation of self-regulation. There's, you know, the interesting thing about emotion regulation is that 
people have uh, different strategies and different strategies will work better and worse depending on who you are. And so uh, sometimes choosing or regulating or managing which situations you choose to enter or to exit Mm -hmm. can be a really powerful way to regulate your emotions. Um, Managing your attention, you know, distraction is one that we can't use it all the time and it would be unhealthy to do so, but it's one of the most effective ways of dialing down emotion quickly. Um, And then changing how you think, something called cognitive reappraisal. Uh, I spent a lot of time in hive mind on this idea. Yeah, yeah, rethinking or reimagining the meaning of the situation is also another way. Yeah. Well, it's funny you think about entering situations. You know, I I remember Seth Godin very distinctly saying he never reads reviews of his books. And I thought, well, that's that's good good advice because he said he was like anonymous feedback from people who I have absolutely no relationship with will cause me to do nothing but hide. And Mm -hmm. he said, and that's why I don't have comments on my blog. And that always stayed with me in terms of creative work as far as, you know, not entering situations. I know that those things, no matter how much I try to convince myself on thick skin, will absolutely trigger me. Right. Um, So, how how does all of this connect to um, the work that you did in Hive Mind? Because like I, I think I think part of what drew me so quickly to this book was that I just I I felt like you were literally describing not only the world that I experienced growing up but the world that I'm experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I started being really interested in the idea of contagion uh, when I was writing the Spark of Learning, and so one of the topics I talk about in the classroom in the Spark of Learning is um, emotional contagion, like between the professor and the students, and the students and the instructor, and students amongst themselves, and how things like enthusiasm and excitement, or things like frustration and anxiety, can quickly spread through a classroom. And I was fascinated by that. Uh, and that became kind of the seed for Hive Mind for looking at the broader implications, not just in the classroom, but yeah. in personal relationships and society. What is, how are these social and emotional contagion forces at play? If you like The Unmistakable Creative, there's another podcast that I think you'll really like. So how does an opera singer learn a new role? How does an actress find the perfect accent for her character? What does the director of a TV drama actually do all day? Those are the questions that Ruman Alam, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas put to creative people every week on Working. Learn how writers outline novels, how composers get jobs and get paid, and how YouTube creators learn to look into the camera lens. Listen to Working from Slate every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I want to start the dive into this with probably a weird question. You know, you say the tribal tendency toward forming in-groups can shape our most cherished traditions and moments, but they can also lead to tension with out-groups and have devastating consequences. And something that came up for me as a, yeah, just now as we were talking about this is when I, I look back at uh, college and I went to, to UC Berkeley where the student body is incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. And yet, by the time I got to my senior year, I looked around. I was like, wait a minute. The only friends I have are all Indian. What the hell? I, in fact, I, the moment that it became really blatantly obvious to me was when some girl who uh, was a student at Stanford came to meet up with me to go out for a drink. And she said, I forgot my ID. Don't you know anybody you can call? And I said, this is going to sound horrible, but I actually don't know any white people mm-hmm. that I have as a friend that I have, you know, I could phone. And it just struck me that... Like, how is it that that happens that you could be in such a place that's so diverse and yet have so much ethnocentricity? And it wasn't just Indians. It was everybody. Right. It's, it's really hard. I, 
for my new book project, I was doing an interview with a student um, and she, because I'm talking to students about their experiences on campus and uh, what, what's gone well and what hasn't gone well. And she shared a similar story in that uh, she's black. And when she started college, um, she was determined, she told me, to to not be a student who would only associate with people who looked like her. And so she joined these eight different student groups and um, and really was trying to explore all these different interests. And uh, the campus that she was on is a primarily white institution. And 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 but it's it was with the Alana group that she felt the the most welcome, the most sense of belongingness, the um, that that she just felt at home, and and she was frustrated with that, right? And and so I think that that's a really difficult problem because we just naturally seek out you know people that feel like home to us, right? And that is not just based in ethnicity, but. It is that that's one of the drawing, you know, it's, it's a powerful draw. And, and I don't think it's one that we should fight entirely. And in that quote, that's part of what I mean. I mean, that's part of, you know, identifying with um, people that we identify with and that we feel at home with is one of the best parts of being human. But I think that there's also a whole lot of good that can be done if we step outside those circles, right, uh, and encounter um, people with different life experiences, and that's so important. And so, I don't think, but I just I worry about false binaries, and I worry about you know this and that. And so, let's how, how can we have both, right? How can we um, identify with and and seek solace from and, and cherish uh, people that are like us, but also reach out to people who are not like us? How can we have? Well, so, you know, in the book, you say you kind of describe hive mind and you say that it refers to the principle that what we know and feel is not determined in a vacuum of independent experiences and decisions, but it's shaped by the collective mm-hmm. and the hive mind collectively decides what's true, what's proper and what's important. Uh, and it isn't just positive and negative judgments that are shaped by the hive mind, but rather it's a critical it's critical in shaping our perception of the world and what you call building consensus reality. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, honestly, like the thing that it takes me right back to is culture. You know, I grew up in a culture where you're taught very specific things about what ambition means, what success means, what a good life means only to basically get out of college, get to the age of 30 and realize I didn't agree with any of it (laughs) mainly because I think what had happened, especially now, because I've spent 10 years talking to people like you, the sheer variety of data points that I'm drawing from basically completely altered that what was once consensus reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, and that's why I, I think it's so important to talk to lots of people <laughs> as you're doing and also to read lots of stories. I think that storytelling and fiction writing are really wonderful ways that we can get exposed to just different ways of viewing the world. Um, because it is, it, it, I just had this experience, you know, on my campus, like many campuses, almost all the campuses were struggling with, uh, and going back and forth about, are we going to meet with our students face to face? Is it going to be online? And I'm of the opinion that we should be online <laughs> and that it's safer. And I have a lot of fears about being in the classroom right now. Um, and, and 
I'm mostly talking to people who agree with me. And then I happen to talk to this one person who's this person that I really like on campus. Uh, you know, we've worked together for 10 years, but I don't know him terribly well. And he just had every alternative opinion to mine. <laughs> um, and, and it was funny to communicate because we kept assuming the other person agreed. Uh, it's what's called the false consensus effect. And then we kept discovering, wait a minute, we, we're seeing this issue completely differently. And it really was like seeing an entire different lens on the world. And I think it's important to put on those lenses and realize that those views are out there. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, early in the book, in the section you called Autumn, you said we're synchronous beings and the contents of our minds spread from one of us to another easily and effortlessly, whether in person or online, fear and love and hate are infectious and they spread over new media. And, you know, obviously to me as a media creator, that was one of the things that really stood out because I, I realized that, you know, I, I think where it became very apparent to me is when I look at my news consumption habits and I, I see that, oh, if I watch Seth Meyers, YouTube is going to recommend Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah. And every now and then I will turn on Sean Hannity just to see or, or Tucker Carlson to see what these people are saying. Given what you know about this. What scares you about how divided the media is? Because it, it like when I see the difference, I'm like, wow, millions of people are getting two versions of what they believe is is the the actual truth. Right. Yeah, that is very scary. And even scarier are those algorithms, right, that are pushing you and in the fact that our young people and who don't have as much of a filter, who don't have that insight. Uh, who are not reading articles about polarization and realize that it's out there, that they are being exposed to different realities. You know, and a lot of um, really remarkable writing's been done on you know, YouTube algorithms and uh, radicalization. And because they're just computers just <laughs> figuring this out, but that, that you just um, that they're designed to move you out toward the fringes. And that, and that's alarming. I think yeah. that, you know, one of the most unfortunate things about that polarization is that there are a lot of people who are more in the middle. I think that there, and there is some data on this, that that things like The Daily Show and things like Hannity are, you know, on opposite spectrums for sure. And there are people who uh, whose beliefs conform there, but that there are a lot more people, there's more talk about polarization and there's more, and I think that these news pundits are also targeting themselves uh, toward these polls, but that there are a lot of people who are whose beliefs don't conform to the polls and that we should be developing media to speak to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not, you know, and this is all so complex and so tricky because I'm not advocating, you know, kind of the both sides isms. And, you know, there are a lot of issues where it's not true that, you know, okay, we have the left and the right and they each have opposite views and the truth is in the middle. There's some things that that's true about, but there are a lot of things that it's not. And so how do you decrease this polarization while not, you know, kind of pandering toward this idea that uh, every issue has two opposite sides. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that makes a perfect segue to, you know, what you basically go into what you call the fiction ourselves. And you say the diffusion of thoughts from one to another hopping across the human hive mind may be responsible for the mass vast majority of what we agree upon is reality. And as I was reading that, you know, I, I think about the people that I interview, the books that I read, and how often, you know, probably a lot of people who listen to this 
end up basically just consuming insane amounts of self-help books or uh, mainly things that tend to confirm their existing opinions. So like, you know, I, I think one of my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law saw me reading uh, a book by Roger Ailes and he was pretty horrified. He was, I was like, look, I don't hate the messenger. Like the guy built Fox news. I probably have something that I could learn mm-hmm. about building an audience from this guy. I could care. You know, do I agree with who he is as a person? No, but, um, and I, I think that what I, what I wonder is, you know, you talk about three sort of core areas, right? What you call the collective library um, and collective knowledge um, appraisals and social norms. Can you expand mm-hmm. on what those are and talk about how they shape um, what we agree upon as reality? Right. Um, so the collective library is a term uh, by a literature professor that has to do with the stories that we consume collectively. And so in the book, I use the example of Romeo and Juliet. You don't need to have read Romeo and Juliet to know the story, right? It just gets woven into so many different um, TV shows, plot lines, conversations. Um, they are just sort of pre-internet memes <laughs> that um, that shape how we think about the world. And social norms are fascinating. You know, those are just little rules for behaviors that uh, we collectively decide on. And so, you know, you wear pants to the grocery store, (laughs) hopefully, um, that you whisper in a library, but you can shout at a rock concert. Um, You know, classic examples, the elevator, that you know exactly what to do when you hit an elevator, that you press the button, you turn around, you face the front. Um, And so they're, they're just these little ways, little rules for how we behave, um, and how we think our other social others behave is how we uh, ourselves decide to behave. And I think you know, mask wearing is a contemporary example of this. And you can see in certain uh, parts of the United States, mask wearing has become a social norm. Uh, I live in Massachusetts, and we, when I go to the grocery store, there's not a single person. <laughs> masks <laughs> and um you know that everywhere you go people are wearing them uh even if there isn't a sign on the door and other parts of the country that's not true right uh and other parts of the country the mask people wearing masks are in the minority and so i think that's a really great example of social norms that um in a certain subculture it's communicated, this is what we do, this is how we behave, and everyone kind of conforms. Um, if I walk down the street and everyone's wearing a mask, I'm going to take my mask out of my pocket and put it on. There's just like this social pressure. And then finally, appraisals are teeny tiny little stories that we tell ourselves about how the world works. And there's interpretations of you know what's important, what is good, what is attractive, what Um, And these can, we are constantly making appraisals all of the time. And as we mentioned earlier, one of the best ways of regulating your emotions is figuring out what your appraisals are and also how you could maybe change them to be a little healthier. And so I could make an appraisal about this podcast interview that um, I'm going to do a terrible job. (laughs) And that then I'll feel embarrassed and it's going to be out there in the world. And that might be my initial appraisal interpretation of this 
situation. And then I can reappraise it, right? Um, I can think of the podcasts I've listened to where the person did a kind of crappy job and I didn't even pay attention, right? <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, people listen to podcasts while they're jogging, while they're cooking dinner, you know, no one's going to be paying attention to every um that I say. And so those are reappraisals that can then help me feel less anxious. Yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So as we're saying that, the, the thing that came to mind for me was how do you have a coexistence of 
you know, some sort of individual self-expression within the context of a hive mind and, you know, to make it more concrete for you, uh, what it makes me wonder is, is why is it that some content creators manage to stand out online um, and build audiences versus others who don't? Because I think that the two, the, those two questions are kind of one, the same question with just one of them as, as a concrete example. Right. It's a fascinating question. I don't have a good answer, I don't think. Um, but I think that it is one of the eternal struggles because I don't have a good answer because I think it's one of the eternal struggles of being human is how do you maximize your individual creativity, your um, your own self-definition, tap into your individual talents while also you know tending to the common good uh, and also understanding other people. And so with the example that you ask about specifically, I think what people are looking for, you know, when people leap up to and become, you know, big influencers or um, get a big following, it's partly because they have some individual flair, right? Something that makes them stand out. This is just not someone, uh, just another, you know, kind of carbon copy of everyone else who's you know, doing a podcast or a TV show or whatever um, blog. But I think that the most successful also tap into something that the hive mind itself is really interested in, right? It, you're hitting a topic or a style or a question that is really important to the collective. That's really important. You, you know, kind of the time has come in publishing, you know, people are trying to figure out all the time, you know, what's timely. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that word means, you know, what is the whole collective kind of aching for or searching for at the present moment and trying to predict that is tricky. Um, but I think it, it, it is responsible for a lot of, um, understanding individual success. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, when you talk about a collective, the, the thing that came to mind when you're still like, you know, something that the collective cares about, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, most of the people I interview are my attempt to solve some personal problem in my life. <laughs> Somehow, apparently they seem to be problems that are universally relatable. Yep. Yep. That's a good way to do it. <laughs> um, when you when you talked about uh, you know the the sort of collective, you also talked about stereotypes, and you said we develop stereotypes because in our collective libraries of television shows and novels and commercials, these groupings have been reliably associated with certain characteristics. You know, and of course, yeah, as an Indian person in my mind, I was like the stereotype of Indians being cheap is a stereotype because they are. <laughs> but I can say that because I'm Indian and I've seen my dad drive across town to like save $2 on gas, but buy a really expensive car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but all joking aside, you know, how do we prevent stereotypes from, you know, biasing our assessment of people? Like, is that even feasible? Because I feel like we have so many cognitive biases. I mean, here's the th- other thing. The positive stereotypes is that we're all the doctors and engineers of the country, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I guess in a lot of ways that, you know, what I wonder about is, you know, how do you see past somebody's stereotypes? Right. It, and that is another million dollar question. It's certainly one that every company and university and everyone is trying to figure out right now, you know, what is an effective way to help people put their biases aside, uh, to put their stereotypes aside and treat everyone with equity. And, 
you know, there are some contenders for various trainings that people have done, um, you know, implicit bias training. There's computer, you know, either workshops led by individuals uh, who are skilled in the techniques, or there's even computerized programs that supposedly try to decrease people's implicit bias. Um, you know, people hope that by teaching people about the dangers uh, and about how unconscious a lot of these are, because I think, you know, and, and a lot of the debates about anti-racism that are going on right now uh, have to do with this fact, you know, that we think about racism and we think about bias, which, you know, is leads to racism, but is not the same. Um, we tend to think about, okay, is this person racist? Is this a conscious, something someone is doing consciously? that uh, they have this explicit attitude, they know about it, and then they're acting on it. And that's not how a lot of racism and bias works. A lot of it is because the hive mind has shaped in our entire, you know, collective and our entire social structures that, you know, interactions that people have at every level are different based on their social grouping. And it's those structures that we need to dismantle. And so I think that individuals can, you know, try really hard. You can read, <laughs> can attend workshops, and I am not against any of that. And I and, and try to just be conscious of, you know, our of one's biases and how one is behaving in one's stereotypes. But I think that the real power is going to be um, figuring out how to straight change systemic structures. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my roommate was reading the, I believe it was Robin D'Angelo book, White Fragility. And mm -hmm. he's, you know, he said, he's like, Jesus, he said to me, he said, my skin color, he said, I, I realize now, he said that for me, because I'm a white person, it's like a water to a fish. Mm -hmm. like I don't experience skin color. Right. Right. And I think that reading, you know, uh, those stories are in some ways a lot more powerful. So reading about someone else's experiences um, who has had um, explicit racism directed at them and, and reading about their stories might go further than, you know, attending an implicit bias workshop. Yeah. So um, I want to go uh, do a little bit of a deeper dive into racism because I know you did some interesting work around the KKK, which like that really struck me as so odd. Um, so what do we what do we think we know and, and what misperceptions do we have about how somebody ends up uh, in a situation like that? Mm hmm. Well, the, so for that section of the book, I interviewed Kelly Baker, who's a religious historian who spent a lot of time unpacking some of these ideas and I think, you know, two of the things that we talked about in her work is, and one thing that she does that gets a lot of pushback, um, is unpack the relationship between KKK and racism and white Christianity and the relationships between those ideas and those cultures. And, and that is fascinating work uh, that she has done. I also get into a little bit, both with her and some other readings, um, the levels at which sometimes groups like that are appealing to the, that collective side of ourselves, um, not just racist groups, but other kinds of cults or really strong belief groups, um, and that they explicitly tap into our need for belonging our desire to have a smaller group where we share 
ideas about the world where we share markings, you know, the costumes. Um, there's also a lot of work on how uh, that group tapped into our desire for collective group ritual and, you know, some of the rallies and nighttime um, gatherings and things like that tapped into this longstanding human tendency to get together in large groups uh, with music and uh, darkness and um, substances sometimes and, and to celebrate and used those often pro-social aspects of humanity in destructive ways, in ways that gathered them more followers and, um, and, and increased loyalty to the group. Wow. Well, let, let's talk uh, about technology. I think that your views were interesting to me because, you know, I've spoken to Cal Newport. I'm guessing probably based on the research that you did around here, you're familiar with some of what he's done. Mm-hmm. He's been a very vocal critic of social media. Yeah. And I've gotten immense value out of his work, uh, you know, to the point where it almost felt like gospel until I read your book. When <laughs> I started I, to the point where I was I literally on my list of things to do was to email Cal and say, hey, Cal, I'm wondering if you would be you know, willing to take a look at this because I, I actually think some of what Sarah has to say is actually interesting because it conflicts with some of what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you really did a, a very thorough job kind of picking apart a lot of what people like Cal, people like Nereal and, and many of these sort of productivity experts say, uh, mm-hmm. that being said, like I said, I mean, I find Cal's work immensely valuable. It's been instrumental to my own creative process, but you kind of made me rethink the, the sort of extremist attitude I developed about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that what I would say about it, you got at right in that last phrase <laughs> and yeah. I am, you know, I use the Pomodoro technique. I love like life hacker (laughs) maximizing productivity um, and helping me, you know, it's a way of emotion regulation really to decrease procrastination um, and all of that. And so I am not opposed to any of Cal's ideas or Nears about, um, about strategizing around, um, the, the pull of social media because it's definitely there and it can be destructive to productivity. It can also, uh, if we really get into social comparison and things like that, yeah. it can harm well-being. Where I do disagree and um, and I think the data don't support just kind of a blanket, it's all terrible, right? Um, and the language, not so much in their books, but a lot of the op-eds and... Uh-huh. Other people's books <laughs> really get into this um, demonizing of technology and of social media, and you can they'll, they'll use language. You know, the devil lives inside our phones, and you know, a scourge, and uh, this really dramatic language. And I don't think that the data supports that. Um, and if you break down a lot of the major reviews over you know a decade or so. Um, there are definitely, you know, volumes of use of t- social technology. Um, again, lots of social comparison. So using it most of the day, lots of social comparison. Also lurking <laughs> is really terrible uh, that are associated with poor m- mental well-being. There yeah. are also patterns uh, such as active use, uh, commenting, sharing, interacting, um, more moderate forms of use that are associated with better well-being than people who don't use social media at all. Um, and certainly, and I have to admit to a little bit of smugness, <laughs> um, 
you know, with the, you know, at the start of lockdown and through to now, you know, you hear a lot less of this, you know, social media is all terrible because we need it. (laughs) It, You know, and like screen time is going to kill us uh, because it's been a lifeline, a social and emotional lifeline to pretty much everyone. Um, so that we can still have Zoom happy hours and we can still um, interact on whatever our platform of preferences. And, and I think that that has really demonstrated, you know, I, I, just, I feel like my position has always been, yes, there's terrible things about social technology, but there's amazing things too. And I think we've seen more of that amazingness. Um, it's, it's funny that you, you say that. One, like, there's, there's two things. Like, one, I almost want to get you, Nir, and Cal on a podcast together and just have you guys battle it out. I told Nir that and he said I would be up for that. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure Cal would too. I think it would be really fascinating to have just the three of you mm-hmm. uh, presenting your viewpoints together because, uh, you know, like I said, you know, I, I think I like right after I read your book, you know, it made me sort of be okay with the fact that it was like, right. Cause you know, I, I mentioned to you, I was recently on this documentary and I'm like, well, my social media is actually really interesting right now because I'm mm-hmm. getting messages from potential women that might want to date me. I'm kind of like, this is way better than it's been in the past. Yep. So I'm kind of intrigued by it at the moment. Um, you know, all joking aside, I also, you know, the, the thing is, it was also incredibly overwhelming at the start because I'd actually stopped completely for 90 days mm-hmm. and to figure out how to be productive with it was a real challenge. Uh, but, you know, so the positives I'm you know well aware of from your research, but you also highlighted the negatives, which I appreciated. You talked about echo chambers and, you know, I think that like even the group of people that I associate with online, largely people who are guests on this podcast, people who are into personal development. I I think that like we're kind of an echo chamber of our own, which is why I try to get the most diverse cross section of guests that I possibly can and don't really care to hear from people that everybody knows. Right. Yeah. And I think that, that's something that we can explicitly work on as you are indicating that you work on and trying to reach out and you probably don't have to go all the way to Sean Hannity, <laughs> but, but listen to read, to uh, follow on Twitter, you know, people who are a little bit different than you uh, intellectually, politically, uh, creatively, I think really is going to benefit everyone. Hmm. So, you know, I think where we're getting to that that point of, okay, like we've talked about sort of the problems and, and sort of the landscape. Um, and I think that, you know, you really at the end go into solutions, right? But you say collectively the research suggests that by changing our stories, our appraisals, we may be able to come together or, you know, over some of the most contentious divisive issues that face us, we can think of ourselves as a human hive as capable of changes of, you know, to take the perspective of people different than us. Um, and I think that, to me, you know, if I remember correctly, this was the quote I tweeted. It wasn't, yeah, I'm not going to remember it word for word that if, you know, yeah. we don't expose ourselves to other people's opinions, we'll never have a reason to question our own beliefs. Yeah. Um, so where do we go from here? Uh, you know, like what you called, you know, B lessons last chapter, like how do we begin to come to some sort of uh, consensus, re- consensus reality that isn't toxic and, you know, doesn't appear to be, you know, leading us toward World War Three, which is right. where I feel that we're kind of headed at the moment. <laughs> right. Uh, a lot of different things. I mean, I think that our current challenges are in one way an opportunity to think through some of these, how do we change the world for the better? And I think 
I spend a lot of the book talking about uh, individuality versus the collective good. And I think in the present moment, this is kind of a reckoning, right? Um, and we need to face to what degree are we going to tend to the common good? To what degree are we going to um, give up some of our individuality in order to make sure that everyone's healthy and make sure that everyone is protected? Um, you know, a lot of what's going on in elementary and secondary education um, a lot of those debates about how are we going to educate our youth uh, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, is illustrating some of the weaknesses of our educational system and how we maybe haven't uh, tended to the collective good. And so I think that that we're going to be forced to change a lot. Um, and my hope is that as we make these changes, as we kind of innovate, um, that we will make ones that are good for everyone uh, that elicit the common good. I think in terms of technology, I summarize up my stance on technology as uh, enhance, don't eclipse. And so the best way to individually use social technology is in ways that shore up or expand your social connections, uh, ways that reach out and remind us of why we're human um, and how we do belong to all of these different nested groups and that they uh, are important to us and to avoid ways of using social media and social technology that um, that eclipse either our face-to-face relationships, you know, if you're on your phone instead of um, engaging with the person next to you, or eclipse, you know, important activities like exercise and sleep. If you're on your phone eight hours a day, then you're probably not doing a lot of other things. Um, and so that would be my answer for the technology. Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, I, I think that it would be very hard for us to get out of this uh, conversation without necessarily talking about, you know, politics per se, particularly, <laughs> you know, in the wake of an election. And this is really one of the reasons I was, you know, eager to talk to you sooner rather than later I mean, given what you know and, and you know, uh, the research that you've done on this, uh, you, what do you tell the people listening and, and what do you wish people in power were actually hearing? Because I, at the moment, jokingly tell my dad, I'm like a bunch of kindergartners could run this country more effectively <laughs> than everybody. And I'm not just talking one side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's the blind leading the blind. In all honesty, I genuinely think kindergartners would come up with better solutions. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's a terrifying year. Um, I think... You know, I think a lot of what we need to get back to and a lot of what has been broken down over the last several years are social norms about how we interact. Um, and I think that some of the work, um, some of the platforms, the social media platforms, especially Facebook, <laughs> have been particularly toxic to this. Uh, and so I am a general, you know, I'm this optimist about social technology in general, but the individual platforms I have a lot of problems with and uh, Facebook in particular. And so I think that we need to both the politicians uh, and individuals need to get back to a way of engaging that is, and this is going to be ironic, but less emotional. Um, and that is less tied into our individual identities. And I think that, you know, a lot of people have written about political polarization. And one of the problems being that 
political beliefs have now been developed as such a core part of people's identities. Um, and that didn't used to be the case. And I think that's why we see a lot of this really emotional rhetoric around politics. Um, but I think that, so that's a problem. Uh, and I think that we do need to develop uh, better social norms for how to interact politically. Um, but I also wonder if not, if it's not the case that some of this group polarization is necessary for social change. And so when everything is just directed at the center um, and everything's very moderate, then we get a lot more politeness. You know, things feel like they're not constantly in flames, (laughs) Um, but not a lot changes. And so one of the struggles and one of the things that I think we're going to have to figure out, and I'm going to spoil this, I do not have an answer for it, (laughs) is that... Um, the politically people are polarizing around certain issues and they're seeing the world very differently. And it may be necessary to have that level of polarization to get social change uh, and civic action. But at the same time, we have um, two groups with very different opinions on what the social change should be. And that I think is the real challenge. And I wish I had a good answer for how to solve it, but I don't. Wow. Um, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews of the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Yeah. I think that what makes someone unmistakable is someone who has figured out that challenge that we talked about earlier, who can be socially embedded, who can be sensitive to all of you know the hive minds movements and what's important. Uh, and give back to the common good while having their own individual flair and being true to their own beliefs. Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom uh, with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, your books, and everything else that you're up to? Well, I do have a website. It's Sarah with an H, rosecav.com. Um, but you can probably find me on Twitter more often. <laughs> Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.